You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I'm one of your hosts. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you doing? Hey, Robert. I'm doing okay. How are yeah. you doing? <laughs> I'm I'm doing I'm doing well. Yeah. Good. That's yeah. good. You're doing okay. Yes. Yeah. What's yes. What's been happening? I mean, the middle of the semester. I feel like just last week I was like, oh yeah, you know, we got our rhythm in the middle of the semester, and then <laughs> October started, and as soon as October started, it's like, oh, so yeah. What about y'all? How are y'all doing? We're doing well. Most people know, I think probably by now that we record these a little bit before, obviously, since they come out on Mondays. And so I'm recording the, or we are recording this on Friday. And so Brooke mm-hmm. has just left for the weekend. So she'll be back by the time this airs, but she's gone on retreat with the ministry that she runs for this weekend. And so kind of just mm. gearing up for me and Gray and Knox to hang out this weekend, which is always fun. So That's awesome. mostly that, but the week has been good. That's so good. Oh, I love that. That's good. Well, and I hope Brooke has a – I mean, yeah, the episode will come out by the time she gets yeah, back. Yeah. But I'm sure she'll have a great time. Hopefully she has a great time at the retreat. And yeah, yeah that's awesome. Yeah. So I have a funny story to tell you too. Ooh, okay. I wanted to loop in. Yeah. So uh, last night I had the opportunity to get to interview Jeremy Everett, who we had on the show just a couple of weeks back. Yeah. So his book is out. It's you know it's launched and um and we had this uh, local event where I got to ask him a bunch of questions at one of the bookstores in the area and. It was so fun to kind of take our episode and like do it live. Yeah. That was that was a lot of fun actually. Yeah, so. you even used some of the questions I think you were saying that we yeah. had because obviously we we wrote those questions. We thought they were right. good ones worth talking about yeah. and so that's fun. How was it doing kind of a live version where, you know, we can't go back and like edit out things or right. not that oh we, you know, just to yeah. clarify, we don't edit out content necessarily, but right, you know, right, clean right. it up. What was the the difference there? Yeah, I think it was just having the audience like right in front of us the whole time as, you know, I was asking him questions and, you know, responding to some of the things that he had answered and responded to. It's just, it's very, it's one thing when, you know, we're on our call with, you know, with our guests. Um, it's another thing when you've got a ton of people sitting right in front of you ask your, <laughs> as you're asking the questions, yeah. and, you know, you know, and being mindful of time, not just you know, like when we're doing our interviews, you know, you know, both of us are mindful of like our schedules, but also the guest schedule. But it's another thing when you've got, you know, a whole bunch of people in the room and you're, you know, realizing that folks, you know, if they have to leave for various things or if they're coming in late or something, it's just, it's, it's very different, but it was a lot of fun too. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was good. So, and Jeremy did great. And it was, I will say it was neat because I got to hear some other layers of his responses that, you know, he he just dove in a little bit more deeply than he did on the episode, but a lot of the contents in the book. So again, like if our listeners haven't, hey, if you haven't listened to the episode, definitely go back and listen to that one. So you know what I'm talking about, but the book itself was just so good. So mm. anyway, so that was kind of fun. It was like, yeah. like a live version of an episode we had. It was yeah. cool. Nice. So, you know, yeah. it's funny. We, as long as this show has existed, I have, in the back of my mind, at, at different points, kind of looked into what it would take logistically and things of doing live episodes, like yeah. some podcasts do. You know, so but you got to actually kind of do it. Yeah, which is cool. It was really cool. Yeah. Well, and I guess it was you know thinking about you and I are going to be doing this in about a month, right, in Indianapolis. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's. So. I mean, I think in my head, it's obviously a little different because we are responsible for most of the content because it's a presentation versus what I what I like. Oh, that's true. What I versus enjoy like, a lot about yeah. this content is inviting 
other people on and then kind of like asking the questions and steering that that's way, true. but you yeah. know, learning from them. So it's a little yeah, bit true. different, obviously, but it'll still be fun. And, you know, maybe you yes. just got some good practice. Yes, I guess yeah, I will totally take it. I need as much as I can get. So absolutely. Yeah. Nice. So why don't you tell us a bit about this episode here? Yeah. So this week, y'all, we have Dr. Dave Rosmarin on, who is, um, he's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Um, and he's the director of the McLean Hospital Spirituality and Mental Health Program. So I have to tell y'all, I have been admiring Dr. Rosmarin's work for over a decade now. He and I both um, had been mentored by Dr. Ken Pergament, who we've had on the show before. Um, Lots of callbacks. Lots of callbacks in this I know. I'm just (laughs) – I like it. taking it back. I know. Me too. Deep links. I love it. But anyway, so so he and I both, you know, we've both been been mentored by by Dr. Pargman and his research. I just so appreciate his approach to the research that he does. And I had the great opportunity this summer, as I've talked on this show before, about being able to go up to SAMHSA's headquarters and, and meet with a bunch of other folks who are doing this work around, you know, faith and mental health and the research that's being done across disciplines. Um, David was one of the folks that were there. And so it was so good to finally get to meet him in person and um, to get to listen to him present on some of his research. And I thought, gosh, we really need to bring him on the show. Um, I don't know why I haven't thought about this before, but uh, I'm so glad that I did in that moment. And so he gets to come on. And this week, you'll hear him talk a little bit about some of the work that he's done at McLean Hospital. He'll, you know, talk about how he identified, you know, patients, you know, their interests around spirituality in therapy. And and he also has a book that he's written called Spirituality, Religion, and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, um, a guide for clinicians that, that he touches on a little bit as well. But he is, I mean, he's brilliant. I, I just really admire his work. I think he's offering so much to all of our disciplines on this intersection of faith and mental health. And so one of the things, though, that I really did love that he uh, had mentioned in this episode, too, is he really honed in on this this question for mental health care providers when it comes to working with their clients, where he said that the one question that we really should include on our intake form is, um, you know, do you consider uh, or do you want to consider your religion or spirituality in your treatment plan? And that was something he mentioned at this meeting, and it was something we talked about in our conversation here. But I just, I, I just, I loved hearing his story about how he got interested in this topic overall and like the work that he's doing now moving forward. Um, and I think that this conversation, it's it's not just going to be helpful for mental health care providers, but we definitely talk about faith leaders as well and and some of the relevance of his work to that population too. And even individuals, right? If you're a client going right. in to make sure that you are advocating for what you think is yes. important, things like that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So anyway, so I'm I'm super excited for y'all to get to hear um, from Dr. David Rosmarin this week. And yeah, I hope y'all enjoy. Hey, welcome back to the show. Today we have Dr. David H. Rosmarin on uh, to talk with us about um, his program called Spirit. He is an assistant professor at the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and director of the McLean Hospital Spirituality and Mental Health Program. Dr. Rosmarin's research and innovative clinical approaches, which focus on the relevance of spirituality to mental health, have received media attention from ABC, NPR, Scientific American, and Boston Global, and the New York Times. He's also the author of the book, Spirituality, Religion, and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, A Guide for Clinicians. And Dr. Uh, Rosmarin and I, we share a mentor, Dr. Ken Pargament, who we had on the show last fall. David, thank yeah. you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me on the show. Really glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else that I missed in the bio? Uh, no, I think you already said too much. So we're already set. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. 
Well, um, I had told our listeners a couple episodes back that one of the things that I got to do this summer was to get to go up to um, Rockville, Maryland and meet with a bunch of folks around this topic of faith and mental health. And and you were, you know, one of the, the scientists who were there to talk about this intersection of faith um, and mental health. So I'm really excited to get to have you on the show. Um, loved the opportunity to get to meet you after, you know, following your work for so long. And so, so yeah, so we're going to, I really want to create some space to, for you to share the work that you shared at that, that meeting with SAMHSA that we were at this summer. So yeah, me as well. It was uh, great to meet you there in uh, Bethesda or wherever we were. <laughs> um, Rockville, yeah. Rockville, Maryland. Um, yeah, it was, it was wonderful to meet yeah, that's awesome. Well, before we talk a little bit about Spirit and this program that, that you shared with us mm-hmm. at that meeting, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into this work overall? Sure. So um, I did a undergraduate studies at York University in Toronto, which is where I'm from. And then I went on to the University of Toronto to do a master's degree and in, uh, in counseling psychology. And it was a good experience, and I, I I did my initial research there on on spiritual and religious issues, and mental health. But I really found that the there wasn't a lot of room within the Canadian system to study spiritual and religious issues, except for under a multicultural lens. And I I don't really see spirituality and religion as a multicultural variable. I mean, to some degree, it is a diversity variable. It's a facet of diversity. It's an aspect of multiculturalism, but I think it's more than that. I think spirituality and religion often cut across cultures, and they, you know, it's it's a dimension of life and identity that is. It, it's uh, I think it's somewhat above that. I think it it, it really um, transcends um, a- aspects of culture and and race as well. And um, in 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 that regard, um, I uh, was looking for doctoral programs and came across the work of Ken Pargament, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then within within a year or so, I found myself at Bowling Green, Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. Hmm. Um, and you know, Ken is a wonderful mentor and really taught me a lot about um, not only integrating spirituality and religion into into clinical treatment and how to conceptualize mental health processes and issues from a spiritual lens, but also how to conduct research in this area, which is in of itself, uh, you know, a challenge with measurement and, and uh, also dealing with uh, re- the review process and, and, uh, and the peer review, the peer review process that is and, and um, grantsmanship and other aspects of sort of the academic side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a great place to work, a great place to go um, to, to work under him. Um, and I'm very fortunate to have been able to do that. Uh, in graduate school. However, I hit a couple of roadblocks because I really have interest in evidence-based treatment in uh, cognitive behavior therapy and dialectical behavior therapy. And, you know, clinically, I consider myself a CBT clinician and, and Bowling Green was a great department, but, you know, the CBT DBT training there was pretty limited as it is in many places in the Midwest. And I found myself at, kind of at a crossroads. Like I, on the one hand, I have these interests in spiritual and religious life, but on the other hand, I'm I'm very much interested in evidence-based clinical practice. And there was no place on earth to merge those two together. And in fact, any places that I was looking for in terms of training around evidence-based treatments, uh, you know, at first they sort of looked a little bit askance at my interest in spirituality. You know, it was almost like these two domains were not to be reconciled with one another or, or to be brought together. Mm. Um, and it was a, it was a bit of a challenging period because I didn't, you know, was I, was I going to be able to, you know, study evidence-based clinical practice? What could, if I wanted to maintain my interests in, in spirituality and religion, or like, did I have to make a choice? Is it going to be science or religion um, in some ways, you know, and mm. uh, that was, that was a tough position. And, and uh, I, I spoke to Ken about it and he said, you know what, I, I have an idea. And he contacted his colleague, Dr. David Barlow, who's at uh, Boston University, he still is at Boston University, although he's, he's emeritus at this point. And uh, Dr. Barlow has a, a clinic there called the Center for Anxiety. He's uh, built, um, he's trained tens, if not, you know, well over a hundred academicians, researchers who have really uh, advanced clinical science in, in cognitive behavior therapy world um, throughout 
throughout uh, throughout academics um, mm-hmm. in different different countries, and he's really an, an incredible uh, clinical scientist of the highest caliber. And and uh, Dr. Barlow agreed to let me do a, a little internship over over a summer at uh, Boston University, and I was just hooked. I was just amazed hmm. at you know that what the cognitive behavior therapy world has has to offer. I loved exposure therapy and the ideas behind it and the science behind it and uh, also cognitive therapy and the, the the theory behind it and how simple it is and how elegant you have this model that can really explain why and how people think the way they think and feel the way they feel. And also it has clinical ramifications. It's amazing. It's really, you know, it's sort of simple but elegant aspects of it. And the clinical science behind it was just so appealing. Um, mm. But there was no way to integrate spiritual or religious issues into cognitive behavior therapy. Um, that just wasn't going to happen. So what I kind of, what I ended up doing, I went back to Bowling Green after that summer and I, I focused primarily on my, in my, my research on spiritual and religious issues. And I waited for opportunities to be able to get more clinical training. And I did that. And essentially it was iterative. I didn't integrate both with each other, but I focused on my clinical training in, 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 in uh, scientific approaches to mental health when I could. And then I focused on my uh, research on spiritual and religious life when, when I could. Hmm. And basically my graduate school was sort of that back and forth, kind of like a seesaw, like, you know, here's my opportunity to focus on this. Great. Here's my opportunity to focus on that. Great. But it wasn't really bringing them together. Yeah. That's hard. It was hard. Yeah. It's kind of like a dual curriculum. Like yeah. I'm sort of mastering this one area and then I have to master another and they're not integrated with yeah. each other. Yeah. Which I, I think what you're describing is super interesting to me because you're, it's kind of this crux, like this intersection, obviously where this show exists, but uh, on both sides of it, there does seem to be like a, how do we do this? Right. Cause from kind of the evidence-based side, you say, okay, these are things that are hard to measure. Right. And we don't want to, you know, maybe talk about too much spirituality in session because you don't want to put your stuff on the client. Right. And then from like the faith leader side, it's, you know, how do we talk about mental health well without knowing all the terms and stepping on toes in that direction? And so obviously that intersection is like kind of the heartbeat of this show. But that tension of, well, how do I do both of these, I think, is one that a lot of our listeners from either side will kind of relate to. Yeah. And I think it's affirming hearing you say that this is such a struggle too, even in the academic world, um, which I hear you highlighting just in, you know, in what you were doing, but also in the practice world too. It certainly, yeah, you know, it certainly is. I, you know, felt like I was kind of, uh, you know, between, between these two worlds and trying to straddle them and they sometimes are very far apart. By the way, I, I think, uh, Rob, your point before, it's even more fundamental because I, I think in the scientific world and even in the cognitive uh, behavior therapy world, which is fairly open at this point, and I think very respectful of diversity, broadly speaking, when it comes to spiritual and religious life, there's almost the thought that like, you know, do people still believe in that anymore? And like, why, like, mm. why would I, why would I go this route? Like, this is just so ar- arcane and archaic mm. and not the way that, and like, is this even adaptive or helpful or functional? Like, you know, just let's throw it out and deal with our secular approaches and who needs this stuff anyway. Mm. Right. And, and I've seen those sentiments less today than they were even 10 years ago. Yeah when I was in graduate school and, you know, certainly 10 years before that, when my mentors were coming up in the ranks, mm-hmm. but it's still there. There's still definitely, you know, aspects of it. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, decreasing over time, but there, there definitely, I felt that I, I'll tell you a story. I remember going for an interview, um, for a CBT clinic and I wanted to get training in how to do exposure therapy. I wanted to learn about exposure therapy for anxiety disorders, panic disorder, phobias, social pho- social anxiety disorder with comorbid depression. I mean, all sorts of great tools that I just wanted to learn how to do. And during the interview, um, I remember uh, the interview went very well. And then they started flipping through my CV and saw, hey, you're interested in religion and spirituality. You're not going to talk to our patients about that. Like, are you? Oh my gosh. Yeah, oh. flat out. And my response to that was, you know, that was kind of a, like a, 
it was a tough moment for me because I'm sitting there in an interview and I, I was thinking, well, what if the patients want to speak yeah, to me about it? Right. And like, I wasn't really in a position to have that argument. So what I said was, listen, if, if that's your rule at this clinic, then, then no, you know, I'm not going to talk to patients about it. If that's what you don't do here, I'm here to learn about cognitive behavior therapy. And it ended up that several patients wanted to speak to me about spiritual and religious matters. I guess they figured out that was mm-hmm. that was uh, an interest of mine somehow, or the books on my shelf, or whatever it was. Uh, but I, I, you know, I declined to discuss it with them. I, I wasn't going to break the rules of the clinic or get thrown out. Um, mm. I had, you know, I really had to follow suit. So it was, it was really, it was tough. I, I really felt like I'm going to be either one or the other, and I don't know how I'm going to meld these two worlds together. On the spiritual side, yeah. also, like like you said, people don't have the language, or the you know they don't they they don't really know how to speak in evidence based terms. I think it's even more fundamental than that. I mean, from a religious or spiritual angle, how much is it even important whether something is verified by science or not? Hmm. Yeah, like that's almost a fundamental philosophical question, which goes well beyond my pay grade, but I think the perception at a minimum, at a minimum, the perception is that like, okay, well, like it's science. Well, does it really matter? You know, this is, you know, there are aspects of faith and connection that are more fundamental than what science has to say. Hmm. Well, and it would be easy to, I mean, even kind of longstanding, right? Freud has some pretty, um, harsh quotes about religion but so even you know hearing folks say you're not going to talk about that are you because that's not you know that's kind of this old way of thinking it it makes sense to where a faith leader would say okay definitely don't go see a mental health practitioner if that's kind of their view Mm -hmm. of this thing that's important right so you can see kind of this uh these threads going back of okay we don't really trust each other right Mm. yeah that chasm was very clear and i was stuck right in the middle Anyhow, um, I do believe in miracles, and I've definitely experienced them um, mm. <laughs> professionally and personally and all points in between. But mm. what, what happened next, I just never could have predicted, which is that I ended up coming to McLean Hospital, which is um, Harvard Medical School's flagship psychiatric training facility, for a fellowship, for a two-year fellowship. And it was a competitive position, and I came – the reason not why they – uh, why I was selected, at least I've been told this anyway, is that um, they had an interest and they said, hey, you know, you know, spirituality and religion might be important to some of our patients and we don't really know anything about it. And let's just be open-minded about what this is. And in the meantime, you know, this kid needs some training. At a minimum, he was going to take it back to his religious community and disseminate evidence-based treatments. And if it actually works out, then maybe the field will get something as well. And mm lo and behold, I think both have happened, you know, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's kind of crazy. So that was, that was 10 years ago. And I've, I've been here ever since at McLean. Hmm. After my two-year fellowship, I started doing research here at the hospital. And I was looking at, firstly, how many patients here, and, and this is Eastern Massachusetts, right? So it's not exactly, you know, mm-hmm. the Bible Belt. Right. Yeah. Or Texas or anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But I figured, you know, at least some percentage of our patients would want to have spirituality to be a part of their treatment, or they would have faith, and maybe they would see that as relevant. You know, and even if it's 10 or 20%, that that would still be significant. That would still be important. And what I found was that a far greater percentage than anybody expected um, had spiritual beliefs, had spiritual practices, mm-hmm. religious beliefs and practices, that they were, and uh, in fact, more than half of our patients have significant spiritual and religious aspects of their lives. And more than half of our patients want to discuss spiritual matters with their clinicians, hmm. which to me is sh- was shocking. Um, yeah. I never would have predicted. I thought it would have been 10, maybe 20%, but you know, yeah. the number on the study, I believe was 58.2% of our patients. Oh my gosh. Was this so? This was was this in the groups work that you were starting to do? No, the groups came. The groups came later. I'll tell you that, that came later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. sorry, not not trying to I'll, skip I'll ahead. No problem. But no, uh, well, <laughs> but um, no, but that's remarkable that it was that high. And your the the patients that you were seeing. Can you tell us like 
just broadly, like, you know, generally where these, these are general um, psychiatric patients who are in inpatient yeah. wards, they're in residential okay. units. These are, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's acute, it's an acute uh, hospital. I mean, we have 10 inpatient units here. There's 220 beds total, okay. um, 10 inpatient units, uh, five or six residential units. Um, and they're all specialized units. So we have a specialized unit just for psychotic disorders, just for mood and anxiety disorders, just for people with eating disorders, just for, we have one unit just for OCD, just for obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm. Um, so it's a really fascinating place to work because you can, yeah. you know, any, any day you can kind of, you know, enrich your experience or, or you'll be seeing, I, anyhow, in my position at this point, seeing patients from really the gamut across, uh, you know, severe psychopathology. It's not very ethnically diverse, but in terms of clinically, mm. it couldn't be more. It's, yeah. it's really incredible what comes through yeah. McLean's front door. That's awesome. Yeah. And what we found is that actually our patients, irrespective of their diagnoses, they were interested in spiritually integrated treatment. Um, you know, when I, this, you're going to like the story. When I first presented that data about how many patients wanted to speak about god or whatever with their therapists a lot of people said oh isn't that all the psychotic patients so oh my gosh <laughs> i know oh. seriously oh my so gosh. i said well you know maybe let's check and i actually you know sussed that out using logistic regression and i found that it was not only the psychotic patients psychotic patients were not mm. more or less likely or less likely to you know want to have spirituality in treatment and neither were the ocd patients or people who were anxiety disorders or all the sort of your, you know, standard, uh, stereotypes, none of them, none of them panned out, um, in the data. And, uh, that, that also was kind of cool. And I, I think that, you know, the hospital administration to their credit have really been, they've really listened and they've seen that, well, this is what the data shows. Then we have to do something about it. I'll tell you some other findings. I'll tell you some other findings. We had some really cool ones. We found that patients who had greater belief in God at the beginning of treatment, like we assessed their belief in God within two days of coming to our treatment, our programs, we found that they did better in our, in our, in our treatment programs, that they actually had less, uh, they had greater reductions in depression over the course of treatment. Hmm. And furthermore, we found that those findings, those, that trend was associated with not only greater reduction in treatment, but in in symptoms, but greater faith that treatment would be effective. So, huh? huh. So it's almost like people who have faith in God that can be catapulted or a context for the development of faith in the treatment process. Mm, That's so interesting. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. So that raises a number of interesting questions. Like, can you potentially harness a patient's spiritual and religious beliefs for those who have it at the beginning of treatment to enhance their belief that treatment will be effective, to give them hope, to give them um, a sense that they can overcome even severe mental health concerns. Um, And we've been experimenting with those, some of those methods here in the hospital clinically in order to enhance care for patients who wish to avail themselves to such, such options. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really good. And I, I think that's amazing that McLean is open to that because that does seem, you know, you would hope that facilities who are providing care would pay attention to that research and that data. But I know, I mean, as you and I both know, that's not always the case, that, the, right? That the agency is ready to to hear that data and make change. And, you know, and so I think that's remarkable that they were open to that and and making those adjustments. Me too. The administration here is really, I believe, truly open-minded and they, you know, they, they recognize well that the field of psychiatry is at a crossroads and a lot of people aren't happy with the field of psychiatry. Um, If you look at the efficacy of our treatments, whether it's for psychosis or for chronic recurrent depression or recurrent depression, if you look at um, if you look at just the, the widespread, the degree to which people are engaging in self-injury or suicide, how we're sort of powerless to be able to deal with this cascade of, of mm-hmm. mental distress that's going on, especially among young adults. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you saw in the news, Harvard, Harvard uh, University just this week had a suicide. 
Oh my gosh, Robert, is that the one that that we were talking about? No, that was uh, the University that of was Pennsylvania. Oh my gosh, yeah, oh University of Pennsylvania is even terrible. more shocking. That's a head I of the know. Yeah. So right. it, it just goes to show that that this is you know these are the, there are really very significant. Um, mental health concerns that our nation is facing. If you look at the opioid yeah. crisis, if you look at you know, uh, if you look at celebrity suicides, it's everywhere today. It's everywhere mm. today, and and I think that you know, to McLean's credit, being a leader, a lot of the people here on on in the administration and on staff say like, well, what can we actually do? What's out of the box here? Maybe there's yeah. something that we're not seeing, and we need to be open minded and. It's that real inquisitiveness and that spirit that's here that's enabled me to, you know, build a build a career, um, yeah, which is a great blessing and yeah, a miracle. No. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. <laughs> I love that you weave that in. Um, well, right along those lines of, you know, as you were saying, you know, the spirit of of things at McLean and, and what you're seeing um, that weaves right into me wanting to ask about the spirit program that you sure. led. Um, so can you talk a little bit about this program, like how you recognize the need and what the need was and, sure. you know, just how the program emerged uh, over time? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so alongside the research that I was doing for those, I don't know, between my I don't know, second year here and well, I'm still doing the research today. So, I mean, alongside that plan of research, I was also doing something called what I like to call, or what we call here at the hospital, called clinical innovation. And that's basically developing, try, I wouldn't call it tried and tested. At this point it is, but developing methods to train clinicians across a large medical system in order to engage with patients in a certain way. And what I've tried to do um, and had some success at doing is innovating clinical methods to train clinicians to utilize uh, patient spirituality in treatment, to assess for it, and to address it effectively within the bounds of evidence-based psychotherapy. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's creating methods that clinicians can relate to in order that they can address spiritual life with patients who come to our hospital. So the first step there was really creating, actually writing a book. That was the one, I think you mentioned it um, uh -huh. in the bio, which is uh, Spirituality, Religion, and Cognitive Behavior Therapy, A Guide for Clinicians. And that's out with Guilford Press. It was published last year. Was it last year? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll have a link to it in our show notes so oh, that our cool. listeners, yeah, so that they can access it too. Awesome. If they're interested. Um, and that book really was an opportunity for me to, to frame how spirituality and religion can be addressed from a CBT framework, to, to conceptualize it, to come up with methods for how CBT clinicians, who themselves often are secular, can harness spirituality, can address spiritual and religious life in treating their patients. Um, and it was a great exercise to be able to do that. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy with how the book came out. But, but out of that, I realized that just having a practice text isn't going to be enough. We really needed something, at least at the hospital, for all the clinicians on staff to be able to utilize with the patients who come. Um, and out of that came something which we call SPIRIT, which is an acronym for spiritual psychotherapy for inpatient, residential, and intensive treatment, S-P-I-R-I-T. And SPIRIT is a flexible, CBT-informed, spiritually integrated protocol which provides material and support to clinicians of diverse training. So it's social work or mental health counseling or mm -hmm. psychology or even psychiatry for that matter, yeah. to be able to have an intelligent conversation with their patients about spiritual life, to discuss with them how their spiritual lives, patient spiritual lives might be related to their symptoms, the treatments that they're receiving, how it might be related to depression, anxiety, psychotic disorders, whatever it is, how the patient perceives that. And furthermore, to be able to promote certain aspects of spiritual engagement uh, and spiritual belief in the recovery process with patients who wish to have such treatments. Hmm. And that is spirit in a nutshell. That's awesome. Um, the, 
the numbers are cool. This we, we we got some funding last year from the Bridges Consortium, which is actually a subsidiary of the John Templeton Foundation, to be able to uh, further develop our Spirit Protocol, to launch it, disseminate it throughout the hospital, and then to evaluate how patients are responding to it across all of our clinical units. And these days, we're getting. 3,500 patients a year, patient visits oh a year. Oh my gosh. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. 22 clinicians performing on all 10 inpatient units and several of our residential units. And I'm in discussion with the other, the non-participating units already. Uh, in fact, today I just had a meeting with one of them to discuss how to, we're, we're going to roll out Spirit soon, hopefully there too. Mm. Um, and really trying to disseminate it across the hospital this protocol so clinicians can provide spiritual integrated care, evidence-based care to, to all of our patients who want it. I, I, want, to, I want to emphasize, this is a voluntary group. Okay? Yeah. Patients are not mandate, mandated to receive spiritual care, not here and mm-hmm. you know, really anywhere. I, I, I wouldn't recommend that, but more than 50% of our patients want it and certainly more, well more than 50% of our patients are signing up. Hmm. Wow. That's really good. Well, and it speaks to, I mean, I know we talked about this in the, the meeting at, um, you know, at SAMHSA that like some of the data that, that my team has gathered has shown very similar, like overwhelmingly folks, they, they do want to talk about this area of their lives and mental health treatment. So it's good, you know, seeing that the numbers are congruent um, between what you're seeing, you know, at McLean and like kind of what we're seeing in other studies. So that's awesome. That's good that, that there's a desire yeah. for it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so it sounds like the patient's responses to integrating their spirituality into this treatment has been pretty positive. Have you, do you have some, you know, general comments that you tend to hear more often from patients about this? Comments from patients. We do get qualitative analyses from patients, but I will tell you that the, you know, quantitative is more sort of my bad. Right. No, I understand. Um, I'm with you. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, patients, I will tell you this anecdotally, and this might be what you're looking for. It's very common for patients who have gone through a spirit group to write on their exit interviews from the hospital that it was the most impactful aspect of their care. Hmm. Um, or that they, you know, finally somebody asked them about their spiritual life after having multiple hospitalizations, after mm-hmm. being through the psychiatric system for 20 years. And they really find it refreshing to be able to speak about their mental health and spiritual as well as psychological terms. Yeah. Um, many patients come and they say like, wow, like this is so neat. Like I can, you know, talking about God and how that affects my, my mood. That's really innovative. That just has never happened to me before. Hmm. Um, it's a whole new level of therapy. You know, one patient once told me. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. No, yeah. those anecdotal, like that's kind of what I was looking for. So I yeah. Figured. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we don't have to do a full content analysis on their, um, yeah, on their comments. Right. But right. yeah, no, that's great. So I was going to ask at one point about your data, but you've been so transparent in sharing that along um, this conversation, which I've loved. But one of the things I really want to highlight too is that you know you you had shared. There's something that you had shared at the SAMHSA meeting that I have just continued to actually circle back to. And in fact, I, I think I mentioned, uh, I think I quoted you on this in a book chapter I wrote recently, that oh. really the most important question for mental health care providers to include in their intake is, do you want to say it? I mean, from my perspective, do you yeah. want to discuss spiritual and religious matters with, with me as your clinician? That's, That's what it. I would recommend. Yeah. That yeah. was it. So yeah, yeah, so that so I love that you had highlighted that in our conversation at this meeting over the summer that you know that that is really the one main question that we really should be asking. But well, so often, I mean, there, there was a method for getting to why. Okay, that's the we'll talk. Question. Tell us about that. I don't know if you. I don't know, but, but what we found is that a lot of patients who are religious they don't necessarily want to speak about spirituality with their clinicians and mm. it could be because they because they feel scared to do so they think they're going to be judged or it could be because their spiritual aspects of their lives are covered by clergy or by you know other supports family who knows um, but conversely though we found a lot of our patients who don't say that they're religious they don't even believe in god they still would very much like to sp- to have spirituality part of the discussion and mm. could be that a lot of patients who don't have spiritual lives supported outside of a 
of a, a clinical setting or anywhere in their lives, really, they need their clinicians to talk about it because they that's the only place. And in some ways that speaks to the importance of, you know, not typecasting patients when they come in. Oh, that's a religious patient. They're good for this group. Like, no, mm. ask the patient, <laughs> what do they want? Yeah. Do they want to speak about it? If so, then they're a good candidate. And if not, then they're not. Um, so that's why we would recommend those. And we have data to support what I, what I just said. Yeah, uh, no, that's so good. Hmm. Well, cause yeah. I think a lot of times in mental health settings, maybe the question that's most often asked is one's religious affiliation, but then I know that doesn't always give us a whole lot of information about how right. it may tie in with, um, the mental health treatment. So I think, I mean, anyways, I just really appreciated that shift and like Maybe this is the question that we ask rather than some of the other typical ones that we tend to see on intake forms. Right. Very much so. Yeah. I think I've shared this on this show, maybe when we were talking with Ken, but at my internship site, when I was doing my internship in grad school, the intake form had that standard question, Holly, that you just said about, you know, list your religious affiliation. Mm. But there was a question immediately after that said, how important is that to you? Like zero to 10. And the answer to the second one was much more kind of indicative of whether they wanted to talk about it than maybe the first mm. one, right? Because you had people who listed something but said, eh, not really that important. Uh, and usually they would kind of not want to talk about it. Or they could say, not affiliated with any, but that's very important or something like that. And so kind of the stronger that they marked on the second one was always kind of my, like caught my eye in terms of, oh, they, they probably want to incorporate this. Yeah, Definitely. that's good. That's awesome. Well, um, what about, I guess some, you know, I mentioned earlier in um, our conversation that a lot of our listeners tend to be mental health care providers, faith leaders, um, and then a, a mix of folks who are somehow connected to mental health concerns, either a loved one or they themselves are um, navigating mental health concerns. So what are some practical implications that you would recommend? We could start with mental health care providers, sure. um, yeah, but then maybe those other groups. Yeah. Yeah, for mental health care providers, and I imagine the folks who are listening to your show are typically people who have spiritual and religious lives themselves, or they might, um, you know, uh, have at least an interest in this area. Um, I really think it's imperative that we take an empirically based approach to mental health. And um, yes, it can be hard if you're coming from a spiritual and religious bent yourself to sort of uh, subdue, you know, those aspects in order to get at the training that's necessary, but just the number of patients that I'm able to help because I'm trained in cognitive and dialectical behavior therapy, it just pales in comparison to what I've seen colleagues who didn't get, didn't really push themselves in their training. I mean, getting DBT mm -hmm. certified today, it's a tried and trusted, tested process. There's behavior tech, there's other, you know, individuals who can do this. And yes, it's expensive and yes, it takes time, but it is worth every penny. And if Patients need it. There are patients who need to learn emotion regulation skills and how to not judge themselves and practice mindfulness and get interpersonal effectiveness skills and just be able to handle the day-to-day -day of their lives. I mean, DBT is so effective at handling self-injury. We can effectively help people to stop within two to three weeks from, from, from injuring themselves, which is extremely common wow. these days. Yeah. And in many cases, not in all cases, of course, but there are really effective treatments out there. And I think it's, you know, I've seen the more I sort of, uh, you know, I'm stepping back and, you know, moving into mid-career at this point, and I see a lot of stuff comes my way, but the religious clinicians who I, and spiritually inclined clinicians who I often engage with, I, I, I you know, I don't want to typecast or stereotype here, but I, I often find that the training in evidence-based treatments is lacking. Hmm. Um, or, you know, sometimes there's a lot more promise than that's delivered. And I think it's selling our patients and our communities short. Hmm. So that's one word of, you know, for, for the clinicians who are, who are out there. And I don't think you have to give up your spiritual life in order to become, uh, you know, a CBT or DBT therapist. I really don't. Um, I think yeah. that it might be tough and there might be aspects and it does raise questions, but you know, that is really food for discussion and for reflection and for moving forward and actually grow. I've definitely grown in my faith from mm. being challenged by my my uh, my CBT and DBT colleagues. No question. 
it hasn't been an easy process, but it's been worth every every step along the way. No question. That's so interesting. I appreciate that. That's good. Thanks. Mm. For the patients in yeah. the audience, I think it's important to advocate for yourselves. You know, um, Rob, you mentioned before that you know Sigmund Freud himself um, had some pretty nasty things to say about religion. I think uh, he called it a, a neurosis. In fact, in other words, a, a form of psychopathology. <laughs> Um, and there's some quotes out there, which anybody can do a Google search for that are pretty shocking. Um, just Google search, uh, Sigmund Freud quotes on religion and you will be shocked. <laughs> so I think that patients and, you know, uh, mental health, um, uh, consumers of mental health services need to advocate for themselves and be, um, somewhat, um, assertive when it comes to this, like, Hey, like this is my belief and this is important to me. Are you going to be able to respect that? can we talk about that? Or do you have to refer me to someone else? And I think that that's a fair question to ask any provider. Yeah. Just to be upfront, like, hey, you know, this is the kind of thing that's important to me. And is it going to get in the way of you getting me getting the treatment that I need? Mm-hmm. That's good. And, uh, I, you know, I think frank discussions like that are, are important. I realize that's hard to do when you're feeling depressed or socially anxious. And, you know, yes, it takes a lot of strength and courage. But I, I think that um, the, the alternative is not speaking about it, not talking about your faith. And, you know, if it's not relevant, then fine, don't, no pressure. But if you want to, and if it's an aspect of, if faith is what gets you up in the morning and you're depressed, then how could you not speak to your practitioner about your faith? Mm, that's yeah. good. If you're going for depression. Yep. Yeah. And that's something that does make sense. That's something mm-hmm. we've talked about before on this show in terms of uh, there being this kind of like, okay, they're the experts. So I'm just going to kind of roll with whatever they say. But mm-hmm. you in the room, like they are there to help you however best they can. And so, like you said, you know, advocating for yourself, even though it feels maybe like, oh, I'm telling them what to do. If that's important to you, that, you know, is important to speak up and say, hey, this is an area that is really impactful for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Therapy is collaborative. You know, remember, you're not going for surgery. You're going for therapy. <laughs> surgery, you do not have to be collaborative. You know, they'll knock you out. They do the surgery. You don't have to do anything. You just have to wake up and recover. Right? Mm, therapy yeah. is not like that. You need to be an active participant. And whatever means something to you, just like Rob, just like you just said, you know, if it means something to you, say it. Um, and be authentic. That's really part of it. Yeah, that's good. for family members. I think you know they're kind of kind of both. You know, I would vet clinicians who are well trained in evidence based treatments and also s- sensitive and capable of handling spiritual and religious needs. That is sort of the sweet spot. Um, and there are people out there. There are people who are either secular themselves but sensitive to spiritual issues, or they might be religious but they've gotten the training that they need in order to be able to help people. Um, but those are the kind of candidates who I think family members should be looking for when it comes to um, helping their loved ones get through get through difficult times. Yeah, that's really good. The last one was with faith leaders too. Faith leaders. Mm-hmm. Faith leaders play a critical, critical role in mental health. Firstly, the faith leaders are the front line for mental health care. Faith leaders are more likely to get a referral for mental health problem than me as a clinician. Twice as likely, in fact, some of the data says suggests even for serious mental health that you know, and I think it's important for clergy to have relationships with therapists who they can trust. I'm on the phone throughout the week with clergy from all over um, who can speak to me. Hey, does this seem like a good potential referral? Hey, what should we do? What do you make of blah blah blah? How can we handle such a situation? Who do you think would be a good clinician for? this case that's in my community. And those conversations are very enriching. And I think they're mutually beneficial. You know, I, I you know, I can provide knowledge and some guidance and cl- cl- and ther- and uh, clergy can provide referrals. Um, and um, I think that those kinds of collaborations are, are really very meaningful. And I, I tell all of my clergy, if you don't know at least three clinicians who you can call up at any moment in time, when somebody from your parish or your, you know, church or whatever it is, your community needs help, then, you know, then you're not doing your job today. Mm. Because mental health is such a massive issue that, you know, that's just part and parcel of being a clergy person today. I'm so glad yeah, you said that. Me too. I do a lot of training for faith leaders and they always say, what are the, you know, kind of the first steps that we can do? And I always say the two easiest things, uh, step one, follow uh, 
good mental health advocacy groups on social media because you're there anyway. You might as well be getting some good information. Mm -hmm. Step two, Google search or psychology today or whatever it is, a couple local people and email them and take them out for coffee. Yeah. Like take them for everyone. exactly that yep. reason. Yeah. Yeah. They have to, it's a network and you have to build a network and those relationships take time and, and effort to build. Yeah. So no, that's good. Well, and as much as the, the as the faith leaders are doing this, I, it's funny because Robert's often talking to faith leader groups, and I'm more often talking with uh, mental health care provider groups, and I'm saying the same thing to the mental health care providers, like, go build a network of faith leaders because you're going to have clients come in who have you know, major spiritual struggles and, and things that are happening and, you know, and you want to kind of have that referral base too. So hopefully both sides are, are providing or creating that group, uh, or that network with one another. So, oh, that's good. Okay. So Dr. Rosemary and I really want to hear before, I know we're getting close to time, but I do want to hear, um, a lot of times we bring on researchers and authors who've just poured in their life into the work that they do, which I know, you know, from having followed your work for quite some time, this is just, it's such a big part of who you are and you, you clearly care very deeply about this line of work. So um, what would you say is your hope for this line of research and work that you're doing overall? Oh, man. Uh, I have high hopes. Um, you know, ultimately, I think the world of spiritual and religious life, and the world of uh, and the world of mental health are trying to achieve the, the same thing, which is the alleviation of human suffering. I think there are so many people today who suffer needlessly and endlessly, and with such incredible pain. And there's so much meaning to be learned from spiritual and religious systems. And I think they're really great just behavioral and other techniques that can be gleaned from the mental health world. So I'd just like to, you know, I would like to see a lot more, I mean, it's symbiosis at a minimum, but really collaboration and cooperation along the lines of, you know, the, the spiritual domains and the mental health domains, um, mental health science in order to, in order to just achieve what we all want. I mean, that ultimately to me is is the goal. Mm, that's awesome. That's really good. Well, if you would like to connect with Robert, you can find him at robert-vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter at hollyoxhandler. Um, you can connect with the, the show on any social media at CXMH Podcast. And we're going to have a bunch of links to uh, Dr. Rosmarin's work and um, his book in our show notes. So please do check that out. Dr. Rosemarin, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Only one, which is thank you for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you. Yeah, thanks for being yeah. I hope you have a good day. You too. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.